Hello and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast all about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor, and this is going to be a Journal Club episode. This time we'll be looking at the legacies of empires and colonialism in environmental education by looking at different ways of knowing. We'll be discussing an article by Glenn Aikenhead and Masakata Ogawa, published in 2007 in the journal Cultural Studies of Science Education, titled Indigenous Knowledge and Science Revisited. In this article, Aikenhead and Ogawa go through three cultural ways of understanding nature, a European-American way, an indigenous way with a focus on indigenous nations in North America, and what they term a neo-indigenous way. Neo-indigenous being a term which tries to recognize many Asian nations' ways of knowing nature, in this article focusing on Japan. They explore the similarities and differences among the three categories to hopefully offer insights to science educators so we can build bridges between our knowledge systems and other ways of knowing. They note that in recent years, interest in this sort of cultural bridging has generally come from a desire for quote, social justice in the equitable representation and success in school science and mathematics by students conventionally marginalized within those subjects on the basis of students' cultural self-identities, end quote. So here's a quick overview of characteristics of these three ways of knowing. First, we have the Euro-American ways of knowing, or Eurocentric sciences. In the article, these are described as uniformitarian, which refers to the generalizability of scientific knowledge, uh, so that means that there's a sense of knowledge being valuable if it can be generalized into similar settings or situations. Eurocentric sciences are also reductionist, meaning a complex problem is approached by breaking it down into parts or variables. They also tend to be anthropocentric. Nature tends to be seen in terms of its relationship to people, so how useful is it to people? There's also a sense that people are free to manipulate and use nature as they see fit. Eurocentric sciences are also heavily influenced by positivism, which is a system of thought which attempts to produce a science free from any worldview or ideology. Emphasis is on inductive and deductive logic implied impartially to theory-neutral observations, making use of empirical and experimental methods. The thinking here being that this produces objective, value-free, secure knowledge of nature. Next, they described indigenous ways of knowing. In the article, they describe these as tending not to make use of dichotomies, so they pull from work by researcher and educator Leroy Littlebear, who writes, quote, The languages of Aboriginal peoples allow for the transcendence of boundaries. For example, the categorizing process in many Aboriginal languages does not make use of dichotomies. There is no animate-inanimate dichotomy. Everything is more or less animate, end quote. He also writes, quote, Aboriginal languages are for the most part verb-rich languages that are process or action-oriented. They are generally aimed at describing happenings rather than objects, end quote. Indigenous ways of knowing are also described in the article as being relational, place-based, systematically empirical, and involving a cyclical sense of time. Finally, the authors describe neo-indigenous ways of knowing. They identify neo-indigenous cultures as, quote, non-Eurocentric cultures with a long-standing history often tied to a geographic region. This history does not include being colonized by Western nations to the degree that so many indigenous peoples were, end quote. The authors in this article focus on a Japanese worldview, highlighting the difference between the action-oriented concept of shiru, which roughly translates as tuno, and Chishiki, roughly translated as knowledge. Quote, from a Japanese person's view of reality, knowing nature arises from praxis and metaphysics, whereas knowledge is something extracted and abstracted from reality by a Eurocentric point of view. End quote. Quote, there is no Japanese translation for the content of what is known that would capture a Japanese perspective. In other words, shiru and chishiki are not directly related in Japanese, but to know and knowledge are directly related in English. End quote. They also spend time on the concept of Shizen, which is often translated as nature. However, the meaning of Shizen also incorporates the interrelationship between humans and the environment they inhabit. Quote, Another way to compare Shizen as a noun and nature is in the context of education. An education in Shizen implies loving natural things in a totality with human experiences, verb-oriented. 
while an education in nature, i.e. in Eurocentric sciences, implies the acquisition of knowledge of nature conventionally isolated from human experiences, noun-oriented, end quote. Hopefully the discussion in this episode will be a step on the journey a lot of us in environmental education are on to acknowledge the legacy of colonial views in education. Joining me today in working down this difficult path by discussing different ways of knowing and how they relate to Western or perhaps Euro-American environmental education are museum and environmental educator Maggie and science educator Tom. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for having us, Victor. Yeah, nice to be back, Victor. So this was a super content dense article. Uh, so I'm curious to know, what were your first thoughts on the different ways of knowing outlined by the authors? Had you seen the differences between our Western ways of knowing and the indigenous and neo-indigenous ways? Had, had you seen the differences spelled out before? I had in, in some ways, particularly uh, university, working with um, a lot of people who weren't indigenous individuals, but did work in sort of regions of work with indig indigenous individuals, um, particularly through sort of like archaeological theory and things like that. It was very much sort of talking about how we are, as you said, sort of very uniformitarian and we generalize everything and we want that empirical, that simplest answer. And we want to like dominate everything and looking at how that's different in different societies. Uh, so it's something I'd sort of come across before in that particular context, but something until very recently, until reading this, that I'd not really considered myself properly in terms of other sort of wider sciences it was a bit of a, not an eye-opener, but it was really interesting to, to read this and to sort of pick that apart in my head, if that makes sense. Um, I agree. It was, it was interesting to think of knowledge almost from a philosophical point of view. Uh, what does it really mean? Um, and obviously in this context, we're looking at what does knowledge mean from different cultural perspectives. And of course, for us, from the Western point of view, it just is something you know when it's completely detached from spirituality and culture, or at least that's the way we want to see it. And I think this article sort of um, places knowledge in a very different light where it actually directly links it to, to culture, um, including our own. And that was an interesting take on it for me. Yeah, and the introduction to the article, the authors describe all three ways of knowing as cultural ways of knowing because i think you're absolutely right maggie that the uh western way of thinking about our knowledge and about science is that it's a cultural in some ways that's one of the big values of this article is sort of looking at how each of these ways of knowing all three of them are shaped by culture so western scientific thinkers like to think we're being acultural but really it, it's just our culture and so it's it becomes the um the unmarked version right we don't think of it as cultural but but it is as rooted in culture as, as the others and i i really i really what my sort of take from that article was how incredibly um how the idea of knowing something um it is very much charged with the value system we held in, in our country and worldview. But it, it's certainly um, quite philosophical and, and it, was, um, it was quite heavy read to start with till you guess your head around it. <laughs> um, so I'm curious, what did you think about the emphasis on the empirical nature and the validity of what the authors called indigenous ways of knowing? Because that's something that they spelled out several times within the article. The, the validity, I thought, was a really interesting point. And there is a point, it's in that second section where it talks, I think, in, about indigenous uh, ways of living in nature. And it mentions that this Western view of science, although it draws upon and sort of continues that idea of sort of ancient Greek uh, philosophy and things like that, uh, but also uh, draws upon other cultures as well. It's only really been what, 450 years or so that they mentioned in the article and like for us that is valid but then they were talking about how these indigenous ways of living in nature and knowing nature have been around for thousands and thousands of, of years um, and that is still valid they're still living with that knowledge and it develops over time as things changed rather than sort of causing those changes uh, and the the very interesting point for me was uh, someone was talking about how they aren't forcing those changes and if you look at 
that Western science, what has that resulted in so far? It's resulted in, you know, habitat loss and all this awful stuff with the climate crisis and things like that. And like, is that a valid model of science when that's the result of it some of the time? Um, so that was a really interesting point. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I thought it was interesting to compare the two and um, actually notice that they both empirical uh, because they, they kind of both 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 based on the system of verification obviously the system of verification is completely different we're not talking about um sort of peer peers reading each other's papers and and testing but we're talking about um cultures that over a very long period of time have empirically observed something and verified it between community through observation and through talking to each other verifying what is what is actually going on out there in nature and that was an interesting for me an interesting way of seeing indigenous ways of knowing or indigenous knowledge if you like because we very rarely talk about it as empirical we talk about it as um, spiritual perhaps perhaps something to do with subsistence merely but not really empirical and i thought that was interesting and um, and it does make complete sense as well I think I initially really struggled to wrap my head around that, you know, being brought up in this Western scientific mode of thought and then being taught to also really value the Western scientific ways of investigating things, check things by experimentation. You want to know that it's true in the abstract. And then when you look at other ways of knowing the world around the world, and then you see that that's not the way that they know it. It's hard to see like, that their knowledge, how could it possibly be as valid if they haven't tested it through experiment? If they've not done a double-blind controlled experiment, how can they know anything? How useful did you think that the distinctions were that the authors made between these different ways of knowing? Like how different were they, did you think? I found them I found them really interesting, actually, especially when they initially started talking about it, it was that idea of Western versus indigenous, and then talk about how like that is problematic in in many ways and then sort of separating that further into indigenous ways of knowing indigenous ways of living in nature and that neo-indigenous as we mentioned and then sort of why they'd separated that and i was like okay that's a very interesting uh differentiation between those and again the article is very very careful and very clear not to not to generalize too much i think believe it said at one point for fear of um sort of generalizing uh these peoples and sticking them into you know, these, these groups and saying things that maybe don't apply to everyone. I mean, primarily the different views to our own in Western science is what I found most interesting. And in, in all honesty, sort of aligned with views that I've held for a while, especially since university and sort of uh, those distinctions and those differentiations were really interesting. And I feel like it's something that needs to be more commonplace. It shouldn't be in an eight, like 54 page article that um, this is how other people think about things. It should be common knowledge. Initially, I, I had a bit of a problem with um, the authors grouping indigenous ways of knowing. So basically, all indigenous cultures in sort of in one box, uh, and likewise the neo-indigenous ways of knowing nature. So the distinction that made, they made here is they were looking basically at cultures that evolved from indigenous cultures, but then got modernized quite quickly and were never colonized, and and therefore had a way of growing from indigenous societies, modern societies in their own sort of way, taking their own path, which is a very interesting concept in itself. But then putting them in one near indigenous ways of knowing box, I had massive problems with. Because in this case, he, he talk about Japan, but in the same box, you have societies like China and, um, and others. So I felt like that was, really just another western way of grouping everything that isn't western in in big boxes so it sort of approached it with um, a big frown on my face uh but but i later understood reasoning behind it and in a way sort of by the way of giving a few examples showing the differences um and it became more apparent to me that uh, there is a reason for for doing it in that that way in this particular article um, and what was interesting to me was the 
the similarities between uh, indigenous ways of knowing and neo-indigenous ways of knowing, um, which didn't separate culture and nature in the same way that we do in the West um, or in Western um, sciences. Um, and the way they were both more holistic was also interesting. Um, having having kind of developed away and uh, independently from from our Christian values, so to speak. So I thought that was that that makes sense to compare them. Um, but I, I did um, I did struggle a little bit with some of the concepts in the Japanese culture because I, I felt they were so different from West from the Western values that it, it would be you almost could read another whole paper just on that. It was incredibly interesting. But just the word nature being an adverb rather than a noun you do things naturally uh, and then trying to put it in, into the context of, of, of culture and the way that the way you do things and and nature is not separated it's very very foreign to us really yeah the neo-indigenous portion they kind of described this framework for what would fit into the description of neo-indigenous. But I mean, in reality, they spend most of the article focusing in specifically on a particular Japanese way of knowing. And so, I mean, they could have just referred to it as that. In some ways, it would, it would do uh, indigenous countries more justice uh, of it just simply being a case study between uh, perhaps one indigenous and one neo-indigenous uh, and then making that comparison. Um, so um, I'm still don't know how I feel about that, but I I understand the, the I mean the points they're trying to make in the article and uh, and it works for that, but uh, still having a slight problem with putting all of them in, in the box. Did either of you have a particular concept within these ways of knowing that you found particularly difficult? I know Maggie, you mentioned the in the neo-indigenous portion the concept of that nature. Is very different from the Western way, as you mentioned. It's it's an adverb, so it's the the concept of shizen, which is in a dictionary translated as nature, but then it's not actually. It's it's to do with like how you live in a place is nature, which is a very foreign concept. Were there any other concepts like that that you you two had? That aspect was strange to me it was that aspect of the knowledge how it differs in the different sort of areas sort of western knowledge is very book-based quantitative you, you you get tested and you know the things and that's that's it you're done you've got the knowledge whereas as you said it's very like experiential in sort of indigenous ways of knowing and the neo-indigenous ways of knowing sort of it's it's that aspect of living in nature and basically almost learning by doing and doing those observations naturally rather than, you know, sitting down with a book and reading and never actually physically experiencing it. I think that, yeah, it was something that, I don't know, have I physically experienced something that I've then learned a lot from? It's something that I think being in school and then university most of my life, it's something that I've not really considered. For me um, as well, the, the idea that nature isn't a noun, um, it, and in this in the Japanese case, um, it, which, which kind of is quite telling for the difference between the countries where in indigenous countries and uh, neo-indigenous perhaps uh, it, it's more, nature's more interlinked with the culture and the space where you are as a human being whereas in European countries where Christianity is dominating Nature is something that is given to you by God to rule over and use. So it's commodified. And I think that whole idea of nature being given and you being caretaker and or user of it then quite easily leads us into the whole idea of capitalism that goes hand in hand with these ideas of it being a commodity and then the way we use nature today. In that neo-indigenous, the Japanese way of knowing, the, the, also the fact that there's a difference between knowing something and knowledge. There's, there's like a, a differentiation there where knowing something, the concept of it in Japanese is combined with 
a way of behaving or living as well, right? So if you know something, it also changes the way in which you live. And so if you think about knowing nature in Japanese, if the concept of nature incorporates the way in which you live within it, then as you learn about it, you also affect nature, right? This whole concept flows together into one. And that's so different from the Western way of thinking because the, the Western um, way of thinking is so abstracted. You want to know something separate from yourself because that's what makes it true and valid. And the way in which you learn about something is by like manipulating it in some ways, right? To control for variables, which is interesting because neither of the other two ways mentioned in this talk about that kind of controlling of variables. They're both about accepting the variables and learning from the variability. Whereas the Western way of knowing is about minimizing that so you can understand the different components and then put it together to kind of awkwardly understand the big whole. And I, I would wonder if perhaps that's why um, a lot of us have so much problem with systems thinking, looking at the connections between things and how they interrelate to each other, because we're so used to breaking things down into component parts. Have either of you encountered examples of different ways of understanding the world? And did it impact the effectiveness of your communication or teaching? One that was really interesting for me a few years ago was um, in my master's of human osteology and sort of funerary studies. And most of it was very sort of, you know, as archaeology and stuff like that tends to be, it's very sort of Eurocentric and how people approach death and sort of dealt with death and things like that. And then we did sort of a, a single module maybe where it was looking at other cultures and how they dealt with the same things and, and grief. While it hasn't really affected teaching because we don't really talk about that in, in our role, it has affected how I talk to other people about those sorts of things. But yeah, it's, it's a very interesting thought to be like, this is how I've always perceived it and how I've always been taught this is, this is how it goes every time you talk about grief and you talk about loss and then you look in other cultures and it's more like this celebration and they're still around, um, these people who have died. And there's all sorts of incredible ways that people think about that and internalize that and come up with solutions to their own. Um, and it was the same with, I used to work in sort of care homes and sort of the first time I made them move from individuals with sort of learning difficulties and other things like that to elderly care and sort of end of life care. Uh, it was very much, I was talking to a gentleman who was from, uh, I think he was from India. He was chatting to me during the training about how different the care was over there and how it was more sort of uh, family orientated and more responsibility of them rather than responsibility of the communal whole of sort of society to, to care for these individuals. And, and it's an interesting one and that didn't, again, didn't affect too much how we went about things. It was just, it's just interesting to learn what these things are. And sometimes you can take really interesting lessons from that. Definitely does. Um, for, for me, really, it's kind of more, more wildly when, um, in a broader sense, when I was working as a, as a teacher here in um, inner city London school, um, we were very, very, very mixed culturally, a group of children and parents and, um, the expectations on the educational system and the teachers and also some of the topics could vary um, really, really a lot depending on the cultural background of the family and, and the parents. But from a more practical point of view, actually being in a classroom or being outside with your children, teaching science or just, just guiding experiences with um, groups of children, um, definitely uh, notice differences in approach to nature uh, and willingness to emerge yourself, willingness to pick critters up from the ground, uh, putting your hands in a pond um, and, and get um, definitely huge cultural differences there. Sometimes because people came from uh, part, grew up in parts of the world when that is not a safe thing to do and they knew so much about their local locality that um, and that kind of stood in the way of engaging with the one here because it would be much more dangerous for them. Um, in other cases, it would be perceiving nature as um, unhygienic and dirty and that wanting to fully engage with it. So, so a range, range of approaches to uh, actually getting hands on in nature that, um, that I felt were 
often, but not always, uh, culturally defined. Sometimes it was just an individual preference, of course. Yeah, I've definitely also encountered the concepts of dirtiness or, or pollution, right? Because you can have all different ways of understanding what that means and also valuing the different ways in which something can be dirty or unclean, right? Like you can have um, concepts of spiritual pollution, right? Like if you touch or do something, it kind of tarnishes you on some spiritual level. When it comes to ponds, it's an interesting one because the kids always think that pond water is dirty. But when you pick that apart, you try and figure out what do what does that mean? And for a lot of kids, dirty is similar to having germs, right? And like being infected with things. But it's conflated also with pollution, toxins and, and poisons that are in the body of water. But these are all very different things, right? So you could have a pond that is clean for wildlife, meaning, you know, it's clean of poisons or toxins that could harm wildlife, but it's still dirty for people in the sense of there's germs in the water. If you drink the water, it could give you parasites or an upset stomach, right? Um, but these are, these are different kinds of things. But in, in the way in which we talk about these things with kids very often, we merge the concepts all into into one, this sense of uncleanliness. But it's important. You know, this is where those distinctions of what do we mean when we understand something is dirty or clean can be really important because um, it affects the way in which you relate to the world. Another thing that struck me when we're talking about these different ways of knowing within the context of decolonizing environmental education, an issue is who is an authority or an expert in something? And I think for a lot of us, who is an expert or an authority, when you come at it from a Western scientific way of thinking, you're, you're thinking like academic knowledge, someone who's studied it, has done experiments, you know, they've controlled those variables, they're an expert in something. But I think even within the, a Western way of looking at the world, there is there's some difference between expertise that comes from lived experience versus academic knowledge. And I think we see that in um, education, certainly here in, in London, in a very urban context where you have people who come from very different, different academic backgrounds. We'll look at these in different ways. Have you encountered times when um, kids or families or people have uh, wanted a different source of authority than what you were citing or using? I, I often felt that when working with children outdoors, where we were really pushing on the observational skills, so we would um, get children to choose an animal and then uh, without really giving them any information to um, any sort of pointing questions, we would ask them to observe, um, for example, a pond animal and try to didact um, from these observations some, some information and some facts. Um, and I, children kind of quite happily often would just observe the animal and um, note of things about how it moves or how it looks like, the structure perhaps of the body and things like that. Whilst, um, whilst adults get frustrated quite quickly and were asking facts, were, were kind of really uncomfortable uh, sitting there w without any previous knowledge, any pointers and just observing. So that, that was quite interesting. And there were some children that it made them nervous as well, but mostly adults, actually. It's very interesting. So you had kids who the lived experience was kind of enough, but for parents that it wasn't enough. They, they wanted that like academic knowledge, that kind of expert position in order for, to, for the experience to be satisfying or enough. It's interesting. I think that is something we get a lot in, in various places when we're talking about, when we're doing sort of that like DRS and we're, you know, handling specimens and we're showing people and we're like, you can figure this out yourself. And the kids are always like, yeah, I can definitely do that. They've still got that spark of like curiosity. They still want to figure things out. Um, and adults are like, just tell me what it is so I can move on. Like, it's yeah. that. Uh, DRS being describe, reflect, and speculate for those who um, 
are not in the know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry, I should, I should have clarified. But um, yeah, it's something we practice a lot. And I always try and get adults involved in doing it because I've, it is a, such a valuable thing to be able to do. If you don't know what something is, rather than just give up or, you know, go to Google. What if you don't have Google? What if you don't have someone who already knows what it is and can tell you loads about it? Um, what can you figure out for yourselves? Uh, I think a lot of people are maybe too reliant on that academic idea being like, what is it? Just tell me, as opposed to sort of trying to come up with ideas themselves and then challenging those ideas. Yes. Although my perspective on that is that in any of those interactions, it relies on having some background knowledge and often you have to get that knowledge from someone else. You know, it may not be a scientific expert. It may not be a book. It might just be um, your parents or, or community members, friends will tell you things, but you need some kind of background knowledge in order so that after you've done the describing, when you reflect, you have something to hook your description onto so that you can then jump off and speculate on things. If you don't have anything to hook the description onto, it doesn't matter how detailed the description it is, you might not be able to answer the questions that you have because you don't have the prior knowledge to, to go to. Uh, no, I, 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 do, I do agree with you that um, it's, it can be frustrating uh, if you don't know anything about a, a subject or a particular natural phenomena or um, a thing and you're just trying to figure it out without any previous knowledge and, and it of, often leads to misconceptions as well and actually what you think might be completely wrong and you might be left with this misconception. Of course in uh, traditionally in the indigenous ways of knowing um, you would have um, sort of a body of knowledge that that's stable as in your elders tell you something, your parents tell you something that already have been observed and then you build on that and then might change with time how that knowledge is built on. But it is again, as you previously said, it is those observations are not, they don't, they don't, they don't stand on their own. They usually come with some sort of pre-knowledge or something somebody else observed previously. That's a point that, um, that you brought up Tom, that the empirical nature of the indigenous ways of knowing is that it's the information is not static, right? It's always being updated. You know, it's not just about you learn a fact. It's you also look at the world around you and are verifying this, that this fact still works and still explain things. I think that's an important distinction that the article makes between all these different ways of knowing also is the Western um, scientific way of looking at things tends to try and pull out these abstract eternal facts. You've got a piece of information that's then going to always be true, whereas the other ones are a bit more dynamic. They're always about responding to what's going on in the environment around you. And so in the article, it actually mentions that the indigenous ways of knowing is, is in some way more empirical because you're constantly, you know, in, in every retelling, you're the, the person then takes that piece of knowledge and compares it to their experience of the world to look at whether or not it, it still holds true or not. Um, and I think there's real value in that because it, it does mean that you're kind of constantly checking and updating your knowledge rather than what a lot of us have done. What I've certainly done is, you know, I, I learn a fact, but then I've never checked whether it's true. So I end up with having these like zombie statistics that are incorrect because you know maybe it was true in 18 something something but that doesn't mean it's true now uh, i think another aspect we, we haven't mentioned yes is kind of the, the more holistic approach of um, indigenous ways of knowing uh, whereas in euro sciences we we tend to take things apart and study just one tiny aspect of something that's actually much bigger um, and of course we we tend to focus more on quantitative, especially in hard sciences, um, focus on quantitative methods rather than qualitative. And then they tend to be secondary and, and not as respected, really. Um, whereas in the indigenous ways of knowing, it's a much more holistic approach, looking 
uh, much more qualitative and then looking at the whole ecosystem, the whole aspect, rather than picking one single thing away. Um, and I think that's uh, that is quite telling for how we live in a place and how we perceive even ourselves as a part or as a separate part of something else. Um, and, and that is, just going back to what we were talking in the beginning, it's, it's very much a cultural value, um, not, again, not just what is knowledge, it is still a cultural value that goes right through the way we feel about knowledge here as much as Indigenous people feel about ways of knowing. Separation between qualitative and, and quantitative methods is it's so prevalent in Western thinking is something that is um, it's changing quite a lot now. And it's something that I think it's helpful to really keep up on what's going on in science and what methods they're using in particular, not just the conclusions. Understanding the methodology that's used is really important because it's a big move now in, for instance, when we're looking at um, behavioral ecology, you know, the ecology of animals and things, it used to be that you know, what was really, really privileged through to the 1960s, 1970s was, you know, people who would go out and study one population of, say, primates, and they'd live with them for months and months. And you end up with these beautiful, detailed, qualitative descriptions of what these animals do of their ecology. You know, But what we're able to do now as our technology has gone along is start to apply more quantitative methods. So um, just recently... Um, there was a piece in another podcast, uh, Radio Lab. They were studying orangutans, and the researcher was having such a difficult time trying to figure out: is that the same orangutan? Is that a different orangutan? What's going on here? Because to human eyes, all look pretty similar. You know, you have to get to know them a lot in order to be able to identify an individual and then follow them around. But while you're doing that, you're only following one individual, right? So you're missing what's going on with the whole rest of the troop. So what this researcher ended up doing was um, she was able to get uh, GPS collars attached to these to a, a portion of this troop of, of orangutans. And she ended up with this massive data set looking at all these different individual orangutans and how they moved. So they built up this much more detailed, almost quantitative picture of what the orangutan troop was doing. And it changed the way in which of how orangutans like organize their social life. It used to be that we thought that or there's the, the top breeding male, he's in charge of the troop, wherever he goes, everyone else just follows along. But when they attach these GPS collars, they got this much more detailed picture and they noticed that actually it can be any member of the troop that ends up determining what direction the whole troop moves. It's not the lead male um, all the time. It can be you know, bottom of the totem pole, as long as they move in a direction with some confidence and other orangutans see them and say, oh, that, that, they know what they're doing. I'm going to follow them, you know, and then the whole troop ends up moving in that direction. And that's a picture that basically we only got by applying quantitative methods. But similarly, a lot is missed out um, when you don't look at the quantitative side. I think, I think another aspect is kind of that we lacking in um, approach, sort of Western approach to science is the lack of kind of deep immersion in an ecosystem. Or, um, so quite recently, you may have seen the film, there is um, a way filmmaker who has no science background makes a, uh, well, he starts diving every day and becomes quite friendly with an octopus. Uh, you may have heard about this already. Uh, While well, mentioning this story is because it's such a nice example of just that, where he dives every single day and observes this octopus and finds out incredible things about octopus behaviour that nobody has discovered before, because nobody nobody has had this relationship, this intense observation, this kind of for hours and hours on end every day with this this type of creature to to observe this before and and I think that was just kind of a really nice example of how important that deep immersion observation can be. You need every tool in the tool bag really. In some ways it hinders us to value one particular tool so much more highly over every other one because they all provide us with these different insights which are which are important. Thinking about the ways in which you've taught or communicated with students 
Are there any examples of things that you already do, which already fit pretty well with these other ways of knowing, or maybe could be modified to fit within these different paradigms to, to help bridge the gap between these different ways of knowing? As, as a science educator, we tend to push science and a lot of that's very much like the case in education as well. It seems to be like, you know, it's STEM usually. Obviously, it's sort of STEAM these days is a bit more in there. Um, and it's very much sort of pushing science as like the thing to go forward. And as they mentioned in this text, it's very much like science for the sake of industry and science for the sake of making money a lot of the time. Uh, it used to be science for the sake, well, knowledge for the sake of acquiring knowledge and maybe universities still adhere to that, but generally science is valued because we can use it to, as you've said, assert dominion over nature or, you know, make new things. Um, and it's really great to look at uh, those indigenous ways of living with nature and how they, it's not just science, as you said, it's everything. It's art and culture and spirituality and uh, that practical aspect as well as knowledge itself. And I think that's something that, um, I always try to push when we're talking about science. I know there's, there's one thing we always talk about how oh, you could do this when you're older, you could do these things and you could do that. And it's like, but also art is important and practical things are important. Like, you, you don't just have to be a scientist because I'm talking about science. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to be pigeonholed to that. You, you can do art because that's vital to our culture as well. And I think that's even more so has to be brought up these days as art is kind of struggling um, to reinforce that fact that yeah art is a vital part of of our culture so it's something i've been sort of talking to people about and being like yeah it's not just science like art is vital to everything as well but it's something i think that i'll be pushing further um for me when, when it comes to environmental education i think I think there's so much we can learn from the indigenous ways of knowing uh, both on a kind of um, individual level uh, what different plants have traditionally been used for and uh, a more holistic view of our environment and ecosystem and um, the places we live in so i think there is a lot more we can learn from from those ways of knowing but it's incorporated a little bit more in the way we talk about the environment when we teach about it uh, what I really liked when I visited New Zealand, for instance, is wherever you go there, if you go to a nature reserve or uh, they will have um, kind of the more well Western aspect on historical aspect and scientific aspect of the tree, perhaps, or, um, or an area. But they will also include the indigenous ways of knowing about this tree or this particular environment or this fish. And both of those knowledges are really important and just to coexist together um, and I think that that's something that New Zealand has done really well and continue to do well um, to kind of revive those indigenous indigenous ways of knowing or the knowledge they have about the natural world but also in a way they're presented together along with each other it's, it's really really nice um, but I think in a sort of everyday lessons there's sort of aspect that I think we should perhaps cover more of course scientific methods and things like that are incredibly important but but things like as i said a holistic approach to the environment including humans really important especially now when we talk about climate change uh, and other ec ecological um disasters um but also respect for all things not natural um, it's a big part of indigenous way of knowing that that we could really learn from and incorporate in the way we teach science and, and, educate, and environmental education, the way we do it today, um, as well as kind of like incorporating more experimental, uh, practical experimentation into the way we teach things um, and sort of just evoking that love for observation that is such a big part of both Western science and individual ways uh, and indigenous ways of knowing. The experiential aspect is, uh, of learning is something that can be, that works really well. Like I'm, I'm thinking of something like even gardening. Any lessons involve gardening fit really well into an indigenous way of, of knowing already. 
um, because it's it's very place-based, which is one of the aspects that they highlight, you know, what you choose to plant depends very much on where you're planting it on the environment there. So it depends on you knowing it um, really well. It kind of gets you to start thinking about time in that cyclical way. You need to start thinking about if I plant now, then this will happen, you know, in this later part of the year, which means that I can do this thing again at this point of of year, you know, you start thinking about the cycles of seasons and how things are going to come back around uh, to the beginning again. And also gardening, there's lots of, you know, old gardeners tales about like my grandpa used to do this when they were gardening. And then it's something that, oh, you can take that nugget of wisdom and try it out and see if it still holds true. So there's all these little aspects and and nuggets within something like gardening or any of those hands-on things, particularly when they involve that kind of handed down knowledge that can be quite local to a particular place. Um, A final thing that I was thinking about is that a lot of these, um, a big struggle that a lot of us have is getting kids to see the value in whatever it is we're trying to teach them. Certainly, I've encountered the like, why do I need to know this kind of attitude. But in both the indigenous and neo-indigenous ways of knowing that these authors highlighted, knowledge is linked together with practice. And so I wonder if that concept of thinking about education in that way might help to resolve that problem of what's the point of this? Because in our Western way, of course, knowing something is very abstracted from action. But in these indigenous ways of knowing it's, it's built in, learning something is learning how to live differently. So everything has a use and implication. That's why you're learning it. Absolutely, Vitz. And I think a lot of environmental education does that already, especially when it comes to um, kids learning about where food comes from and how food is produced and why that's important. And um, so I think, I think it, it does that to a point. Uh, but it's definitely it's difficult to make those links to subsistence and the importance of them. Um, as in a highly organized modern society, we're just so incredibly removed from it. Uh, and I think those are aspects that we definitely owe to bring in. Uh, I think we do it to a point already, but it, it is hard to, to make those links because we are so removed from it. Did this article bring up anything for either of you that made you think this is something that we should probably stop doing in environmental education? To be fair, Victor, a lot of the uh, a lot of the Eurocentric ideals, I was like, we should stop doing in general in in in, in, in its entirety. Like um, just thinking about again, it comes back to that that respect that Maggie was talking about and how those indigenous neo indigenous people treat their environment and treat nature and how it's all about respect whereas for us it's all about exploitation so in terms of environmental education i guess just important that we hammer home those relationships i know maggie you said it was it can be difficult to to do those things but i think environmental education lends itself more to that than things like maths the amount of times i've come across teenagers have been like what what do i care what pi is when am i going to use that when i'm you know 25 and working wherever i'm working like I think it does lend itself more to that. Um, I think it's it's going to be a matter of re reevaluating our values in sort of Western Eurocentric science as to, to what what really is important, um, and sort of make, moving forward once we have that idea, as opposed to just plowing through with what we currently have. Absolutely. And, and in some ways, it's, it's less about ways of knowing, less about knowledge and more about what the indigenous way is so much more interlinked with and its way of being. Because we, we have a lot to learn um, in regards to how to interact with nature and how to be in a sustainable way. And this is for sure um, more relevant than ever with climate change and uh, mass extinction so perhaps rather than learning what they know it's learning how to be from them and incorporating that i think that's a that's a really good point is maybe putting less emphasis on what we can learn about nature and, and more on how we relate to nature it's a good lesson that i took from this article was getting a, a bit of a 
deeper understanding of this this concept of indigenous or aboriginal people like respecting nature and understanding uh, getting a better understanding of what is the root of that respect and it's that there is less of a dichotomy of human versus versus nature for a lot of us in the west there's this very big difference between something that's natural something that's artificial we see these distinctions and dichotomies and so it's really easy to see animals as in some ways less animate than ourselves right less conscious because we want you know we're we're trained to make these distinctions these dichotomies but in other ways of knowing those that dichotomy isn't really there and so if an animal or a plant or an environment is just as animate as we are then surely it's as deserving of as much respect as we would give other human beings thank you both for joining me in our discussion on this article i mean we covered a lot of ground so thank you both very much well yeah pleasure to be back victor been been a lot of fun as as per usual yes very interesting article thanks for bringing us along uh, and if you want more details on this article and for full show notes, check out our website, uh, which is knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com. If you've got any questions or comments or any other topics you'd like us to look into in the future, send us an email at knowingnaturepodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at KN underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>